I think the big driver is that there's so much, well, I'll say lack of information, lack of protocols, particularly female-centric protocols when women are in those perimenopausal and menopausal years. It does seem that the narrative still, unfortunately, is, well, this is just the symptoms that you're experiencing are just a function of age. Here's an antidepressant or here's a birth control pill or here is some sort of Band-Aid solution to manage your symptoms. That seems to be the narrative. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Did you know that you can leverage your menstrual cycle to your full advantage when it comes to your energy, metabolism, and body composition? And honestly, so much more, even in perimenopause. And the reason why I say even in perimenopause is because I am pulling all of the levers right now myself. And so is my guest today as well, which I'm going to get to in just a second. Now, it's no surprise that our metabolism and our hormones are constantly changing every single day during our cycle. And while we are still experiencing a menstrual cycle, those hormones have a tremendous impact on our blood sugar, metabolism, and yes, our body composition. Now, I can't think of a better way to help you tap into your physical and emotional potential than by having a deeper understanding for how to nourish and move your body throughout your menstrual cycle, even and especially in perimenopause. So that's why I'm excited to have one of my dearest friends, Dr. Stephanie Estima, join me today to share exactly how to approach eating and training and up-leveling our build-you-up hormones like testosterone and growth hormone to feel energized, to feel lean, and to feel overall amazing in your body. Now, before I bring her on, I want to quickly sing her praises. Dr. Stephanie Estima is an expert in metabolism and body composition. She's a doctor of chiropractic with a special interest in functional neurology, brain metabolism, and the specific application of the ketogenic diet and fasting to the female physiology. Now, she's got an amazing book on this very topic, right, on ketogenic and fasting for the female physiology. It's called The Betty Body. And it's titled The Geeky Goddess's Way to Intuitive Eating, Balanced Hormones, and Transformative Sex. And it is worthwhile. So let's welcome Dr. Stephanie Estima to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast. Well, welcome back, Dr. Stephanie Estima, honey. How are you doing today, girl? Oh, I'm so good. I'm so happy that we are spending this time together and catching up. We had a great little catch up before we started and just a pleasure to be here. I am so happy to have you on today. We're going to be talking all things metabolic health for women, particularly in perimenopause and menopause, when we see a decline in our hormones and when everything just kind of feels like it's on a roller coaster ride and we don't really know what is going to work for us and what isn't. And so first, what I want to start into is what has been your experience, not only your own personal experience, but your experience working with women in this demographic and kind of what has driven the passion to want to serve this group of women? Well, sure. I mean, first I am a woman in perimenopause, so I'm sort of in the trenches with all the women that I'm serving. I'm 45. And I think the big driver is that there's so much, well, I'll say lack of information, lack of protocols, particularly female-centric protocols when women are in those perimenopausal and menopausal years. It does seem that the narrative still unfortunately is, well, this is just the symptoms that you're experiencing are just a function of age. Here's an antidepressant or here's a birth control pill, or here is some sort of Band-Aid solution to manage your symptoms. That seems to be the narrative. You know, even when we say perimenopausal woman, there's so much diversity in just that word. In some ways it's almost meaningless, right? You know, you could be a woman who 
has been cycling like every 29 and a half days on the money every, you know, for years, you could be someone who has dealt with hormonal derangements, androgen excess, estrogen excess, poor estrogen metabolism, thyroid issues, the list goes on and on. So there's so much diversity in that cohort, in that age group. So be thinking about different protocols for each of those different verticals and how we can serve them. And it doesn't seem like there's a lot of information. I mean, I just posted today, I'm about to do a solo episode on on my podcast, just all about perimenopause and menopause. And nobody knows anything. It's like, tell me about weight. Why am I gaining weight? Why is my hair thinning? Why can't I sleep all of a sudden? What about bioidenticals? What about this? Am I, do I take estradiol in the follicular phase? Do I take, you know, progesterone on the lutein? Like, how do I do bioidenticals? There's not even really stated protocols for that. And then you want to deep dive a little deeper. If you are someone who's looking at labs, the labs that you're going to get from say a traditional doctor and the ranges that are appropriate are going to be different than maybe a functional medicine provider who has a much tighter and stricter call it range that they're going to deem acceptable. So Part of it is self-interest. My goal, I have children. I want to meet my grandchildren. I would love to be there to meet my great-grandchildren. Like I knew both my great-grandparents or great-grandmothers, I should say. I would love to meet my great-grandchildren and I want to be the favorite grandma. I'm just going to be honest. Like I know that there's going to be another grandma and I want to be the grandma that can take the kids to the park, that can give my son and his partner, let's say a day off. And it's like, leave the babies with me because I have all the faculties, all the strength and all the abilities to take care of these children when I'm older. So it's a driving force personally, because I want to age well. And I also want to serve the women that are around me that are going through the same thing. Mm, I love that. I feel you. My, my son's a little bit younger than yours, but being almost 44 this year and him being two, I don't ever want him to second guess that I can't keep up. I want to be like this morning, he, we were trying to get him to brush his teeth as well, and he was like, no. And he just galloped out of the room. <laughs> I looked at my husband and winked, Alex, and I just galloped out the room with him. He thought it was hilarious. And so, but he was just like, just such a toddler fashion. And I just, I don't ever want him to think, I'm like, oh gosh, mom can't handle, she can't do the things. So I feel you there. And having a purpose and having a why I think is so important, especially as we start to navigate these changes. And you're absolutely right. Perimenopause looks different for every single one of us. And there are so many different stages, multiple stages of perimenopause as well. It is an epic epic transition and one that we really need to honor. We're stepping out of our reproductive years into menopause. When we look at and break down how long we're in perimenopause and menopause, it's close to 50% of our life, if not more. There's never really been conversation around it. So it's always been, oh, the change, you know, they're going Mm -hmm. through the change. And I think for maybe our mothers, it was more, I mean, when I sort of look at my own mother and think of her transition for her, it was in some ways, very stressful. I think there was a lot of grief around it. I think there was a lot of apprehension around aging and considering her own maybe mortality for the first time. And now that I'm here, I also find myself thinking, oh yeah, I'm not 25 anymore. I don't have this 75 or hundred year horizon anymore. Like I've sort of done half of you know the time that I have here. So what is it that I want to actually achieve? So I find myself deeply thinking about some of these questions that I never was thinking about in my Mm. 20s and 30s. You know, 30s for me was all, you know, it was children and, you know, my clinic at the time and kind of managing those two things, which, you know, took up most of that decade. And now I'm thinking of, 
okay, so what do I want? My kids are a little older still, you know, they're not independent yet. They're, you know, 12 and, and 10, almost 11. And what do I want to be doing? And what do I want to be creating? And do I really want at the end of my life to say, wow, I was really freaking stressed out like the whole time? Or do I want to find pleasure? And do I want to find joy? And do I want to you know, at the end of my life, when I'm looking back saying, yeah, this was time well spent. And like, I feel like I spent a good amount of time working and doing purposeful work and having the why as you described. And I took enough time for play and I took enough time to enjoy the products of my labor, let's say, you know, like my children and, you know, the life that I've created and, and all the things. I think that's really important kind of like to, a framework to be thinking about our life. Girl, I haven't even been, I'm not even thinking like that. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. So driven by my next, like my three-year vision and my 10-year vision. I love that about you. You're so positive. Me, I'm like, I'm going to die soon. What am I going to do with this life? And you're just so happy and like in the moment. So I admire that in you. I'm always like deeply thinking, you know, stoic. And I'm like, this is like my life and I can't bring anything with me to the coffin. This is like my dark side. I know. And I was just looking at your glowing, gorgeous, youthful face as you're saying this. And if you guys are checking this out on YouTube or if you go to the, the Better Podcast, that's definitely podcast, or you go and check her out on Instagram, you're going to see like, she look like looks 35, maybe, you know, and is, you know, probably, I don't know what your inner age is, but probably around that age. Yeah, I did it once with, um, what do they tell me on inside tracker? I mm-hmm. did it once. I think they said it was 20 something, 20, I forget the number, 27, 28, something like that. That's amazing. I clocked in at 35. So right. I'm lowering those, That's some good. of those things right there. So yeah, I love the framework that you're coming in with, but I also want to yeah, paint, paint the picture of how you look and how you operate in the world. And I think those are things are definitely to consider. I want to roll back just a little bit and talk about how we, we really do diminish women. We normalize or we paint this picture of diminishing returns as we get older, which is just a load of crap. And I think it starts way before that, Stephanie, and, and, you know, speak into this and chime in if you can. But I feel like we really diminish women the second they get their cycle and then it just continues to get worse from there. And so where we, I find that we aren't setting women up for success metabolically, you know, in terms of understanding their cycle, in terms of optimizing their life in accordance to their biological rhythm really starts so much earlier than that. And that really puts us at a higher risk in perimenopause. And then we get to perimenopause and we're already kind of seeing some of the struggles. Lots of women are struggling with low thyroid issues or they're struggling with burnout or low fatigue, mitochondrial dysfunction, they're stressed, they're tired. And we head into perimenopause and, you know, you're right, the typical societal and what you're going to get from your doctor is nothing we can really do for you. Like, this is just kind of how it is. You know, here's a couple of things that kind of help you kind of bypass some of those symptoms, but they're just band-aids more than anything. And we're never even getting to the root cause of what's going on. And we never actually addressed or optimize one of the most important pieces of our reproductive system. I just want to go on a little, little, just kind of get on my soapbox for a second is what I personally believe to be true is that if the female body was designed to create 3D prints of people in the world, like we make babies, then all the research from the get-go should have always been around how do we optimize our physiology? And then men could have been smaller women. So that's kind of how I feel about it. And if we had looked at that from back in the day about like, okay, if the female body is particularly metabolism, immune system, hormones, all of them have to optimize at every single day in a different way and be dynamic so that the reproductive system could work optimally so we could make children to continue to propagate the population of this world, then why haven't we learned you know, and gone into scrupulous detail about how to 
optimize women's body to make it work and then extrapolate that information down the road. And so that's where I think we've ultimately failed women. And then we start to look at that information and build on, okay, what can we do as we know hormones are shifting? Progesterone, precipitous testosterone, growth hormone, and then estrogen over time as well. How do we then optimize metabolic function and all the different hormones to keep them going as long as we can into perimenopause, then into menopause so that women are dynamically metabolically flexible, feeling amazing, have great mitochondrial energy so that they can thrive into those wisdom years. I agree with you in a lot of ways. I feel when a woman, at least I can say, I do think it's changing, but for example, when I started my period, it was like, okay, here's some pads. There was maybe a class, maybe two, who knows, maybe I skipped those classes. I don't know. Like there was some class on reproduction. It was, there was super a video. Awkward. There was a banana <laughs> and there was a condom. It's like, here's how you put the condom on the banana. And it's like, all right. And so I agree. I think that women, the education piece for our beautiful young girls now is still lackluster. They still don't really understand how the ebbs and flows, like the changes in hormones, how that might change the way that their energy, you know, how they feel every day, emotionality, their motor coordination. Like we know that certain times of the cycle, and we'll get into training, I'm sure at some point, but there's certain times of the cycle, particularly in the follicular phase, week two-ish, day eight to 12-ish, where we actually have peak activation of the motor cortex, right? So really great time to start new movement patterns during that time. A lot of women will say that they feel clumsier in the second half of their cycle. And part of that is because of that attenuating activity in the motor cortex. So lots of different changes from a physical, emotional, spiritual perspective that is not really discussed for women. And I would say, you know, we have a mutual friend, Nat Pringudis, who was on my show very well. And I believe she's been on yours uh, several times as well, has talked about this idea that women that are, you know, 16, 17, 18, when their period starts to, you know, like you're, it's like when you first start to menstruate, it's like you got some training wheels on, right? You don't necessarily riding the bike the way that you should. And then sometimes you can slip off and fall. Maybe you have, you've missed a period. There's an androgenic surge and you can kind of look like you have a bit of, like you sort of look like that clinical picture of PCOS. Mm -hmm. And so teenager tells her mom, they go to the doctor together and he says, or she says, or whoever says, you know what, we'll fix this, the birth control pill. And so at that moment from when she's 17, let's say, we've robbed her body of the ability to heal. And she often stays on that pill. At at least I can just say from, I'm extracting from my own clinical experience and what women have told me, but easily a decade, like easily women are on- they're on for 10 years. We have no long-term studies, as far as I'm aware, on what it means to take a medication for 10 years. And then you grow up, you kind of mature, right? We know that the neuromusculoskeletal system matures at about 25. So if you're on the pill when you're 16 or 17, like it's almost a decade of your life, right? 26, 27 would be about 20, about 10 years. So we have no idea what that does. I would say that generally the feedback loops and the hormones and the sort of the neurotransmitters and all of the things that sort of the coordination, the symphony of menstruation is absolutely affected in at least half of the population. I mean, some women will get off the pill and then they're pregnant next month. They don't even blink. And then for about half of the women who get off, it's like, oh, I don't have my period this month or I haven't had it for two months. Or when I get my period, it's really not the way that I remember it to be. 
And I think many women who fall into that latter category are often very surprised. Like no one told me, why didn't anyone? Because the reason why you get off the birth control pill is to get pregnant. And any woman knows that when you want to get pregnant, like you're already behind, like you wanted to get pregnant yesterday. So if you don't get your period for a couple of months, that can seem like an absolute, it's an agonizing eternity for that woman. She's frenetically trying to find answers and nobody really has it. So I would say that we do set up many women to fail in that regard because we don't discuss risks. We don't discuss possibilities. And I think that I'm a really big advocate. I know you are as well for this idea of informed consent. Like, just tell me, like, I'm a big girl. I can put my big girl pants on. Just tell me what the issues I may run into are, and I will make the decision for me in terms of what risk level I'm willing to, it's just like, you know, a financial portfolio. It's like, do you want a risky portfolio or do you want a maybe balanced or, you know, you have some fixed, you have some equity, whatever, right? So we're thinking about, let me make my own decision. Just tell me what problems I may run into are. And so that I can either help attenuate those. I can help bring those down by maybe supplementing with B vitamins and CoQ10 and, you know, whatever, and, you know, et cetera. So I think that there's that. And I think the other piece that you, that you said that I just want to circle back on is this idea around research. I've often joked that research is kind of like me search, right? People will look into yeah. research. Oh, yeah. If you're a man, you're going to be very interested in looking at male mice. You're going to be looking at male humans. If you're doing human studies, you're very interested in the outcome as it pertains to you, perhaps to you more mm -hmm. so than women. And you know this, I'm sure your audience, this has been brought up before, but I think it was only 2017 where women were mandated to be included in research studies because prior to that, a menstrual cycle was considered a confounding variable. Like the women were too different over Either the course of we the were period. too different or we were too much the same. It was one or the other. <laughs> so I think now we're starting to get perhaps better outcomes. I think that we have a problem on both sides now. So I think we have a problem with male fertility. We are, men are the seed, women are the soil. We have a problem with the soil, which we're going to talk about today. And we are seeing an estrogenization of our beautiful men as well. So we are seeing drops in sperm counts. We are seeing more aberrations in sperm count and even just like the quality of the sperm, we're seeing that change as well. So I think that certainly I don't doubt that there will be solutions potentially that will be presented for on the male side of things. And then in, in many ways, women are sort of, I think that it's getting better, but we are still left largely to our own devices to sort of figure out what's going on. And I think it's going to remain that way for quite some time. I mean, even with the mandates, and I know that some mandates were even made in the 90s, that not much has changed in the way of us restructuring, not enough for us to really understand. And so, you know, it's really based on a lot of what's happening on a clinical level that we are really making changes and figuring out what's going on with women regarding their menstrual cycle and, and then heading into perimenopause and beyond. And so I think, unfortunately, we're going to see more of that for quite some time before we start to see a, a major shift in focusing on women-centric medicine. So I do want to still spend time. I want to go back, but I just wanted to address the elephant in the room that yes, we are definitely failing women at perimenopause and menopause, but girl, we were failing them way earlier than that. And so it just, yeah. it compounded. We, mm -hmm. you know, so often we care about women, whether it's endometriosis or it's polycystic ovarian syndrome, because we need to fix those so that women have, you know, a greater chance of fertility. And so right. often in the history of, you know, women's health and, and you know, women going to the doctor, if they weren't interested in trying to get pregnant, then. And so often they were kind of blown off. 
until they were wanting to do so. You know, I grew up and my view of my cycle and my period in particular was a very negative one. And I shared it in an episode recently. I had had an evil stepmother who would track me, would watch me like a hawk anytime my period would come. And when it came, she would just berate me and yell at me and shame me for it. And she would accuse me of being extremely moody and, you know, all these things. And so I remember I hated it because I knew she was always lurking behind the corner. She was always... I knew she was going to just beat me up about it every single time. So when I got into college, when the offer to shut it down entirely was given to me and really sold, like, like it was like a marketing mm-hmm. proposal. I was like, yeah, I don't need this because I didn't know. And it took me a full year once I got off of this really intense birth control, took me over a year to get my period back. And I only made it a year on this particular birth control. I just, I couldn't handle the side effects. So yeah, I absolutely believe that we, we need to do better when it comes to educating women, you know, giving them informed consent, not marketing it as the end all be all fix, because I think that's often still what women are getting. Well, first, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I know you and I have talked offline about this and I'm just in awe of your courage to share that publicly. So I just want to say how courageous uh, you are. And obviously I've said this to you privately, say it to you publicly as well. Like I am so sorry that that was your experience. It's so unfortunate that sometimes we have, not that it's an excuse, but you know, hurt people just tend to hurt people, you mm-hmm. know, and yeah. whoever knows whatever her motivation was, but I'm sorry that that was your experience and how that translated for you in terms of looking at your own fertility. And of course, like, it's such a natural, like, yeah, I had someone who is essentially looking at when I was more sensitive and then driving the knife, the stake, say, you know, deeper into my heart every time I was more sensitive. Of course you would opt to turn that off. Of course you would opt to arm yourself and to be, you know, to air quotes, if you're watching like, you know, stronger, right. Because you didn't have those vulnerabilities, but I do think kind of coming back to that idea that we were talking about before, I think like someone should have said to you, Hey, these are some of the things that may or may not happen to you. Maybe you can chime in and tell me what your observations have been. I have often noticed that some people on the birth control pill, they're like, I couldn't, I don't even know that I'm on it. Like they don't even notice. There is sort of a, say a phenotype or a type of woman who, when she gets on birth control, she tends to be, not always, these are some clinical generalizations. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not from a study anywhere, but just my observation, this woman tends to be very high achiever, tends to be a bit more type A, tends to be, has lots of degrees or lots of success behind her. And so when we see, let's say more of her testosterone getting bound up, when you're on the pill, we affect uh, something called SHBG. And then we start to see more of these sort of free testosterones and free estrogens kind of being soaked up, uh, sopped up, we'll say. That woman feels like terrible. She feels like she's been hit by a ton of bricks. She has no libido. She feels like, I don't know if we can swear on this show, but she feels like crap. Okay. We'll say it that way. Right. Just feels like she's been punched in the throat. I find that that's the same woman who suffers in that menopausal, at that later stage, perimenopausal into that menopausal transition. Like she has been riding her HPA axis. She has been sympathetic, dominant. Adrenaline has been pumping high for years, running. And not to say that this is you, Maritza, because I know that you've done a lot it of work. It is 100% me. I'm now, recovering stressaholic. And not to mention insulin resistance. Our blood glucose variability is correct. all over the place at this state, state correct. that we're talking about. You know, when her adrenals start to take over some of that sex hormone production, 
reaction. Her adrenals just don't have anything left, right? So we have old stress, you know, maybe we have the evil stepmother, we have the physically abusive, emotionally abusive, some type of something maybe in her past that she, there's still some residue, let's say in her nervous system around. And then she has the current stress that she has. Maybe she has children, maybe she has aging parents, maybe she's in a job that doesn't really fulfill her. Maybe she, you know, whatever it is, she has trouble with her mother, you know, whatever, all of these sort of current stressors pile up on top of the old stuff. And then she just doesn't have the reserves really to produce adequate levels of sex hormones when she's sort of transitioning and really, really suffers with the hot flashes, the sleep, the weight changes. So we start to see a lot of sort of central weight gain through the belly area, this like ectopic or central adiposity that starts to accumulate. So that woman I find really, really suffers. And I mentioned that kind of phenotype is because I, I feel in some ways blessed to be a practitioner because I've seen it for a long enough period of time. And I see myself in some of these women that I'm facilitating. And I have said to myself, if I don't get my own stress levels under control, this is not going to go well for me. So in some ways I have to, like, I'm so grateful for the work that I do and the women that have been, that have trusted me in, you know, serving them because I've been able to see the same type of woman over and over again. And it's like, actually who I'm treating is me. If I don't get my own stress under control and my own approach to stress under control, the woman sitting in front of me might as well be me in 10 years or 15 years or whatever it is. So there's a certain type of woman who kind of does poorly on the pill, I find. And it's usually the mirror. It's usually the same woman who struggles in perimenopause and menopause. It's someone who doesn't have a really good handle on her stress or doesn't have appropriate stress management techniques. Just say this and I'll, I'll, I would love for you to weigh in here, but I have found as that woman, knowing that I need to meditate, knowing that I need to get out in nature, knowing that I need, I'm like, oh God, I hate, like, I just hate meditating. Like when I work, like if I'm going to dedicate some time to my health, like I want it to count. Yeah. You want to lift heavy stuff, girl. And the gains are there. Let me tell you, I'm the same. I'm like, I need to feel it. Although I do like meditating as well. Okay. So, but I've always struggled with that. I would always be like, you know what you need, little miss 45 year old, you need to meditate. You know, I'd be like pointing to them. And we all know that when you point, you have like three fingers sort of pointing back, pointing at, back you. at you. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, what you need to meditate. So I have found just as a little actionable item mm-hmm. for your audience, if it's useful, I have actually found yoga nidra to be very helpful. So it's only 10 minutes. It's not the asanas. It's not the sun salutations say that you might do in like a Hatha or an Ashtanga yoga class, but you're listening to prompts for about 10 minutes. Just Google yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest is another way of saying it. I find that's a nice little pick me up about two or three in the afternoon when I have more tabs open than I would like on my computer. I pop out for a little 10 minute, get it on my phone, lie on the couch, 10 minutes is really nice. And the other thing that I find is really nice as someone who lives an area or you know place in the world that has the full complement of seasons, I will sometimes, and I probably should put this on Instagram uh, now that I'm thinking about it, but sometimes I'll like just put on a bathing suit in the middle of the winter and just jump outside, jump in the snow for a couple of <laughs> minutes. And I'll just run out kind of in my bikini, keep my, I have some mittens and boots on, but like my body I'll put uh, fully in the snow. Those are the two <laughs> things that really help with my stress. Yeah, uh, because if it. you ask me to meditate, I'm going to, you know, I'm like, well, first I got to get a headband and I got to buy an app. And, and then it's just like, forget it. I'll just, no, I'm not going to do it. I do want to unpack a little bit of that. Yeah, you're right. You cannot birth control your way out of chronic stress. You cannot birth your control your way out of trauma. 
You cannot birth control out of your way out of mitochondrial insufficiency. You can birth control your way into gut issues. You can cause those things. You can, I was going to say, you can definitely cause those things. You can birth control your way into nutrient deficiencies. And yeah, no wonder, you know, if we're given birth control as a, a little bit of minor insulin resistance as girls are, you know, I have a niece, uh, there's a little, it's not Starbucks, it's another place. And they drink, I mean, girl, their drink, it is so nasty. Like these, like, they're like the equivalent of Frappuccinos. And I think about girls at that age that are seeing a little bit of insulin resistance that may see a little bit of that androgen uptick and then being put on the pill when we really should have been addressing, you know, nutrient, obviously the core root issues that are driving some of this, you know, then we put them on the pill and yeah, we never, that that didn't fix insulin resistance. That didn't fix the sugar consumption. And so it's no wonder, yeah, we see women really struggling on the pill. And I would even suffice it to say is, although some women may not notice that there's a lot of normalizing. Women will tell me they don't notice anything on the pill. And then they'll tell me all the things that are going on with them. And I'm like, girl, that is the pill. They don't don't connect connect the dots because we're told not to, or we're told that doesn't matter or that doesn't count. And so there's a lot of that narrative. And then, yeah, no wonder some of those traits, the way we've been behaving, operating in our world, really, I always say, yeah, if you're struggling, if you're getting serious PMS symptoms, if you're struggling with your period, it was coming for you in perimenopause too. It's just going to be exacerbated and especially exacerbated for women who are doing the most. Absolutely. What I want to share, because I think, you know, there's a pivotal moment in our 30s and 40s where we got to turn the ship around. We really do. We That is the time. We know that we're losing muscle mass. We know that we're becoming more and more insulin resistant. You know, there are a lot of things on the metabolic foundation that if we don't start tending to, you know, the wheels can feel like they're coming off pretty quickly towards the end of perimenopause. And so I would love to talk about you know, functional labs. You know, I would really love women to start looking at in their thirties to kind of just get a baseline, ideally twenties, love that. But let's just say thirties is when you start to notice something isn't right. Like all of a sudden that resilience, that those two glasses of wine, they're not the same. You can't just go back and go to your workout the next day and feel great. Like there's begin to notice. And I think that's the time where then at least we should start getting baseline. So are there labs that you prefer that you would love to see that kind of give you a good sense of what is going on with a woman that you feel is great to measure that we can kind of start biohacking a little bit into that perimenopause, menopause time, that transition? Yeah, there's quite a few, actually. I would say that if you are someone, irrespective of your age, whether you're in your 30s or you're 40 or 50 and you're listening to this and you're like, damn it, I don't have that baseline stuff from when I was 30. I did create a a PDF and I'll share it with you so that you can share it with your audience. It goes through things like glucose and fasting insulin, looking at estrogen and what time, if you're a woman in your fertile years, including perimenopause, what time of the month you might want to consider that follicular stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, again, testing on like day two or three of your cycle, very important. So we can kind of look at the ratios between FSH and LH, uh, which are follicular stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, testosterone, progesterone. Again, you can't just go in any time as a woman of the day or even the month to ask for those. There are specific times where we want to look for options optimal levels. Same with thyroid. Like you always want to get your thyroid stuff in the morning, like as early as the lab opens, like nine or 10 o'clock would be like the best time to kind Mm -hmm. of get labs done. And of course, even with thyroid looking at not just TSH, which unfortunately, God, I can't tell you, I mean, you must hear this all the time, but I probably, I don't know, maybe even in the hundreds at this point when women are like, my doctor won't, you talk about thyroid on your show and you talk about looking at antibodies or you talk about reverse T3 or my doctor won't order those things. I hear it all the time, but TSH is not a thyroid panel. A thyroid panel is T3, 
and T4, and then free T3, and then free T4, and then reverse T3, and then the antibodies, TPO, and thyroglobulin antibody. And it's a full panel. So I will share the PDF with you that you can just maybe attach to your, your In the show, show notes, notes for sure. Maybe. And it, it goes through like time of day. We talk about growth hormone, insulin, all the things, and then optimal ranges, which are probably going to also differ. Again, I mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but when you go to, let's say a traditional medical doctor, they're really just going to be reading across, like they'll sort of look at the lab and then it's like, does it say, is it written in green or is it written yeah, in red? Yeah, is it got an know? H on there or an L yeah. on there? Is it high, yeah, high or low? <laughs> high or low? Is it red or green or yellow? You know, it's like, yeah. they're not actually looking at the number and thinking, okay, so is 14 nanograms per deciliter, is that normal for testosterone for this woman at this point in her life based on the time of her cycle? Like they're not doing that. No, and they're not so, even asking you. And they're not even directing you, okay, make sure that if we're going to be testing these hormones, you want to come on this day. If we're looking at progesterone and estrogen in relationship, we come on this day. And just note the caveat too, is that we need to know our cycle. Hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency? It's because we burn through the super mineral so quickly. Now, this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now, it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my essentially whole magnesium restore supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code podcast and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. Here's something I know every woman can agree on. Stubborn belly fat can feel like the worst, especially when you've tried everything to lose it. Not to mention, belly fat can be dangerous for us too. According to a brand new study, women over 40 who have excessive belly fat are up to 20% more likely to suffer a heart attack. And no surprise, hormones are involved in belly fat production, which is actually good news because we can optimize your hormones and metabolism for a flatter stomach. And that's exactly what I'm offering to you as a free gift today. My Belly Slim Down Guide gives you three effective strategies to get rid of belly fat, along with recipes to reduce bloating, balance your blood sugar, and speed up your metabolic furnace to optimize fat burning. So grab the Belly Slim Down Guide with my proven protocols and recommendations and recipes now at drmarisa.com slash slimdown. That's drmarisa.com slash slimdown. And the link will be in the show notes. Yeah. Just a heads up, just a little, just gonna put that in there. So let's start with that. Download, no affiliation, by the way, Clue app, my favorite. Yes, I'm sure yes. there are many others, but I just love Clue. They're so great. You can enter in cervical fluid. You can enter in basal body temperature. You can say my skin is really oily and greasy today or all the things like I had sex. I had great sleep. I had all the things. I love this app. It's great. I'm sure that there are others that are equivalent, but if you are not tracking, download Clue and just start 
getting Start some tracking. data. Just yes. some, three months. I say three months. And there's a lot of apps that will kind of like guide you or kind of mm-hmm. make assumptions and just ignore all that. It's really you paying attention to your body for at least three months to get a better sense of what's going on. Because I've been tracking for so long, I forgot to mention that. So I get so many messages. God bless all of you women in your forties that are like, I just started tracking because I was listening to Maritza's, po- I was listening to this podcast, the Essentially You podcast, or I was listening to whatever it was, wherever they found it. And they're like, I should probably track. God bless you women. I just have to say, because it takes a lot of, in the same way that I feel like it's a courageous feat to share an incredibly tender story that you just did, which certainly I'm sure there's some tenderness and some grief and maybe uh, other things that you have worked through. But a woman in her 40s saying, okay, it's time for me to start tracking my cycle. Like, good for you. And not even that, but like, congratulations to you for really starting to understand your body and your chemistry and really own your wisdom and your superpower. It's your superpower. You know, it, it was a major transition to go from, this is the biggest, most shameful burden I could ever have. Just get rid of it to like, oh my gosh. It is a freaking superpower. Like, ooh, girl, let me just leverage my life around this sexy hormone cycle that I got, you know? Well, it also, I'll tell you, last week, I was in week four of my cycle. This week, bleed week or shark week, as I like to humorously call it. But (laughs) last week, I was so bagged and I was dragging myself to the gym. I saw that on Insta. I saw a couple little posts. I saw that you just kind of... You did it like one day you just sat in the car and you're like, I just, I just walked. I, I walked. Just, I, <laughs> I just, I turned around and walked my booty. It was supposed to be a weight workout. I had the whole thing planned. I was like, okay, we're going to do this and this. And I got there and I was like, God damn it. I can't do it today. And I'll tell you as someone who is, I'll say moving towards being a formerly, you know, a recovered type A, not quite there yet. If I didn't know that I was on day 28 of my cycle, I would have berated myself. It would have been like, how could you do this? Now you're behind. Why can't you like, just freaking just do the workout. Like, why can't you just like, it would have been all of that frenetic kind of narrative. You're not productive. You're not getting the gains. And yeah, but I was like, all right, it's day 28. I'm freaking hot. Like I was hot. And I just walked. It was so freeing. As someone who has that gremlin, we'll say that inner critic, that inner gremlin, that's always like produce, 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 produce. It was so lovely. I was like, this is just the way it is. And it was so like stoic and gentle. And yes, it was a walk. And yes, I missed out on my back workout or whatever I was supposed to do that day. And it didn't matter. And your, you know, your hormones and your body, you probably got so much more benefit from that walk than getting pushed, right? I know that. I know that week, girl. I'm just like a freaking men to not doing any crazy. I'm not lifting heavy, crazy stuff unless I'm feeling super called and I know I can absolutely do it. It Mm is a, I am walking, I'm doing yoga. I'm obviously skipping and galloping around the house with Kingston, but yeah, the heavy weights, I love owning it. I'm like, this is my time, but I'm glad we're talking about this because, you know, we're talking about labs and what we should be asking for. Just really kind of going back really quickly to fasting insulin, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, get the Mm. full freaking thyroid panel, please. I demand it. I'm like a demand. The lipid panel, right? We want to see what's going on there. If you can get more extensive cardio metabolic lipid panel, then yay. So thank you for bringing this up. So Mm -hmm. cholesterol, again, not a full lipid panel. Okay. No. So they're going to give you like total cholesterol. Again, they're going to read, is it H? Is it L? They'll do an HDLC and they'll do an LDLC usually. What you also want an LDLP. 
So particle number, ideally under a thousand, but you want an LDL particle number. If you can get an APOB, awesome. If you are someone who has a history of high cholesterol, hypercholesterolemia, familial hypercholesterolemia, you may also consider getting a coronary artery, coronary artery calcium score, which is basically kind of like an x-ray of the coronary artery. And what they're looking for there is any calcified deposits. So if you have any atherogenic activity, which is to say you have like a buildup, let's say of plaque inside the arterial wall, if it's been there for a long time, it'll infarct, it'll basically kind of implode and then it, it calcifies. And so you can see that. So if you're over the age of 40, that would be also a wonderful thing to do as well. But you have to request it. Your MD is not going to be like, hey, would you like to get a CAC score? Like you're going to have to go in and say, you know what? I was reading about this thing. And then you also say this as well for anyone who's having to, we'll say, dance with their medical doctor in order to get labs. Try not to go in, as my grandmother would say, like a bull in a china shop, like try to be gentle about it and not activate their ego. Because if you're like, I heard Stephanie and Stephanie told me that if you just order TSH, you're not a real doctor and like, they're not going to do anything for you, right? Like you can get more with honey than you can with vinegar. So go in and say, you know what? I'm 40, like hair's falling out, kind of cold, like present some symptoms and say, hey, what do you think about? I read this, maybe bring in the PDF that I'm going to provide for you. And you say, hey, like I was thinking of like doing all of these thyroid just to get a sense, like just to get a sense of the thyroid, like what do you think about that? And then have the conversation that way. I think if you approach it from a collaborative point of view, like, hey, can we work on this together? I think that you'll get more that way than going in and demanding, you know, the labs and saying like, you better get me this LDL particle number or else I'm reporting you to your, you know, you're never going to get anywhere with that. So, and this is like, maybe we need to activate a little bit of our feminine wiles, right? With our doctors. It's like, you know, I was thinking like, what do you think? And then do it that way. Because if you walk in kind of like angry and determined, the doctor is going to very likely write you off and not give you what you want. That has just been my experience. However controversial that sounds. Yes. And note that if you're still getting the runaround, which is often the case, unfortunately, that there is other ways to get these labs done. There's other uh, lab companies that are running just thyroid panels. There's lab companies that will give you more extensive. I know it's more out of pocket than anything else. And I, you know, and that's a bummer. But then also what I found too, is that if you're like, okay, this, there's a major history of this and this, and I'm starting to feel like this and this, there could be trigger words that you can get those labs that you want. And speaking of, I was thinking about the full lipid panel, the full cholesterol panel and looking at just kind of, you know, what's the calcification on our arterial arterial walls, triglycerides. We have a higher mortality rate of cardiovascular disease than men. 50% of us are going to die of cardiovascular disease. And sooner that we can be looking at these numbers to get a sense of what's going on, the better off we are at mitigating some of those risk factors down the line. And, you know, I think that's just something that we should point out. I know that often we think it's a male disease. It's a man's driven disease. I even grew up thinking that. And, and until recently, I still thought more men died of stroke and heart attack than women do, but no, women die more of it than men. And so, you know, I think it's just important that we start looking at this because it seems like right after menopause is when we start seeing diminishing returns on our metabolic health that start leading us in that direction. And so we really, you know, unfortunately I had an episode that went live yesterday and my big realization was ain't nobody coming to save you. Like you've got to advocate for yourself and look at some of these things and take ownership of it. Because again, we're still writing women off as if it's not a big deal. You shouldn't really be thinking about it. 
Yeah. In some ways, the years before menopause, we have this protective effect from estrogen, right? So estrogen has various effects on the body, but particularly when we think about cardiovascular health, estrogen is involved in vasodilation and vasoconstriction of the arterial walls and the flexibility and the pliability of them. So after we see this like very acute drop in estrogen levels, of course, that's going to affect our cardiovascular risk. And that's partially why. So when we talk about cardiovascular disease in men, we often see the onset like 10 to 15 years earlier than women, because we have that cardioprotective effect through our fertile years and even in, in through perimenopause, however much there's that oscillation there. After menopause, then we start to catch up, right? Then our risk factor starts to go up. So we often will see sort of like a, we'll say like a phasic shift, 10 to 15 years of a delay for women. But it is, as you mentioned, the number one killer in women. It is the number one cardiovascular disease of any kind. So MIs and cardiovascular disease in general, number one killer in women. It's not breast cancer. It's not Alzheimer's. So, yeah, Although yeah. those are big categories. Those are big but, ones. Yeah, and 75% yeah. of all Alzheimer patients are women. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stats are scary, right? When mm -hmm. we take a look at 50% of you know, women are going to die of cardiovascular disease. 75% of all like dementia cases are women. Over 70% of autoimmune cases are women. Like we start to look and it's something went awry at some point. And I think it's, it's the mismanagement of our care, the mismanagement of understanding our bodies. Because of that, I want to veer into, because I think a lot of it is metabolic, you know, and how we haven't really taken care of our, we haven't known how to optimize our metabolism based on our body, a female-centric way of looking at metabolism. And I still feel like there's some gaps still we're trying to we're trying to figure out, we're trying to fill in. But mm -hmm. I would love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, where is the juice worth the squeeze when it comes to supporting our metabolic health based on our cycle and even heading into perimenopause and menopause. Yeah, this is such an important topic. And I think while there are many hormones that we can I mean, we could probably be here for the next day chatting, uh, but I would say that when we're thinking about, let's say a cycling woman, she's in perimenopause or even earlier than that, we want to be thinking about optimizing a couple of hormones, you know, the juice, you know, the juice is worth the squeeze. Let's say, as you said, I would say growth hormone, testosterone, and we've already talked a little bit about insulin. So growth hormone kind of sounds like what it does, stimulates growth, cell regeneration. Uh, as a kid, it makes you taller. As an adult, it keeps your muscles lean, helping you build muscles. It also helps you burn fat. It does decline with age. So around 30 ish, 30, 35. If you experience a lot of stress and you don't have some of those stress management techniques that we were talking about earlier, let's say you're eating lots of carbs, you're sitting too much throughout the day, you're not exercising enough, like pretty much almost every woman that's listening to the show. And, yeah. and how many steps yeah. would you say, Steph, like under 500 steps a day would be sedentary just to kind of get a measurement? I would probably say someone who is not clocking in like three to 4,000 steps a okay. day. That would be sedentary in my opinion. And then, you know, there was this sort of number in terms of steps per day that was kind of thrown around. I don't know if it was like Fitbit who first started it, but 10,000 was like the number that everybody, you know, was like, you need to get 10,000 steps a day. And it seems like the minimum when we're talking about deriving some of the benefits from walking, which by the way, superpower, everybody should walk. I love everybody. walking. Me too. It seems like 
at about 7,000 steps, you're going to kind of get the, not maximal, but you're going to get the most bang for your buck with where the juice is worth the squeeze is around that 7,000 step, seven to 8,000 step mark. If you can do 10,000, I mean, gold star on your chart, you know, if uh, you girl, can do- it's always my goal every day, 10,000, but I say 75, I kind of meet in the middle of like, yeah. if you can get to 7,500, yes you know, you're going to get all the benefit, like you're going to get the mood benefits. You're going to get all the, you know, you're going to be upright. So you're going to be working some of the contralateral, like that contralateral movement, which is very important for brain health, proprioception, coordination, mobility, all the things. So 7,500, I think as a minimum would be super important. And anything above that, like you are just going to treat yourself to new leggings and new shoes and maybe a cute hat or whatever, every, however much you want. But I would say that would be very like an important marker. So that's kind of growth hormone. The nice thing about growth hormone in women, I'll say that this is where we do have an advantage over men is that we can through things like resistance training, let's say even like manipulating temperature. So like the cold therapy we're talking about sauna is another way to do it. We can kind of reach maximal, call it like peak uh, growth hormone secretion, somewhere between 20 and 30 minutes of like weight training activity or sauna use or, you know, cold, like if you're doing like hot and cold plunges, that kind of thing. Whereas men need about double that. So they need somewhere between 40 and 60 minutes to kind of reach that peak. So if you are finding that with age, maybe your skin is a little saggier. There's like a checklist. Actually, I remember from um, Sarah Godfrey's book, she had a really nice checklist in her book. It was like, if you're like, if you can pinch your skin or, you know, you're starting to notice like more jowls, let's say on the face. And I think it was like the hyperthene. I have to go back and I don't remember all the things that she had outlined, but like, if you kind of look at the palm and you can sort of like really easily pinch the skin, that's a really nice kind of indicator that maybe your growth hormone is not what it should be. Testosterone is another mm-hmm. hormone that we have to think about for women. So I know phenotypically we think estrogen, female hormone, femininity, and certainly that's true. However, testosterone is the most abundant sex hormone in the male body and also the female body. It has like, again, like estrogen, there's receptors like in the brain, in the lungs, like everywhere. Testosterone is everywhere. It has similar functions to growth hormones. So Mm -hmm. things like, you know, the building muscle, burning fat, famous for libido, lots of women in perimenopause are like, I have no desire for sex. Or they have no testosterone. (laughs) Right. It's gone. Right. You know, we would think that progesterone drops faster, but in so many women that I run labs, especially the Dutch test with testosterone, you know, it it just dropped quicker for a number of reasons. But yeah, it's one of those build you up hormones that we can lose very quickly if we are not consciously and intentionally trying to keep her at play. And also I would say painful sex. That's the other thing that, you know, like lubrication maybe is a little slower and then sex itself because testosterone, like I said, many function in the body, but one of the things that it does is it helps preserve muscle. And when we look at the vagina, of course it is made up of muscle. If we have lower testosterone, we're going to see changes, let's say to both the, I'll say the strength of your orgasms because the, you know, when a woman is orgasming, we have this almost like tonic clonic, like there's this, like almost these contractions that happen. Like, I think it's like, I can't remember the number, maybe 20 to 30 times a second. Like it's crazy. It's a lot of contractions in a second, but that is also mitigated by testosterone. So strength of your orgasms decrease, sex is more painful. And then you're just like, screw it. I'll just use my vibrator. I don't, I don't want to be with my partner anymore. And then, you know, we see whatever, maybe we see it. The relationship might deteriorate from there. I don't know. A lot of women will say that. 
sex is, is gone. So one of the ways that we actually, the more natural way, like certainly there's bioidenticals that you might consider, but I would say before you think about going down the hormone replacement route, which I'm not against, but I do want you to understand your genetics. So how quickly you produce testosterone and other androgens, uh, how you metabolize estrogen and consequences of, of metabolizing estrogen. You need to know your genetics, I think, before going on any bioidenticals, either it's BHRT or HRT. And one of the most natural ways to preserve your both your growth hormone and your testosterone is through lifting. Okay. So yes. it is through resistance training. This is why you <laughs> see me in the gym, yes. like working my booty off because I'm like, I need to keep what I have, ideally add to what I have in terms of lean muscle mass as I age, because that keeps you metabolically healthy. Insulin resistance starts in the muscle, right? We know that by volume, the brain is like, you know, I call it like a glucose gobbler, right? It's like 25% of like whatever you're, it's almost like a, you know, kind of like a gremlin in-, in Or like in a cookie that. monster, you know, yeah, like a cookie like, monster, <laughs> totally. <laughs> like 25%. But by volume, of course, your muscles, they're going to consume almost as much, if not more, just by sheer volume, because we have the quads, the back, the shoulders, the hip, like all the places, right? So, and what we know, at least like insulin resistance is a painless, like you don't feel insulin resistant, like those 17 year olds that are having, you know, the fuzzy peaches and the, you know, and the slushies and the frappuccinos with the blue food coloring and the red dye and all that. You don't feel like you're insulin resistant, right? You don't feel that process happening, just like you don't feel your arteries clogging, but yeah. the insulin resistance first settles in the muscle and it can be overcome by weight training. So every time the muscle contracts, you are helping a certain transporter. I won't get too nerdy on you right now, but it helps a certain transporter kind of express itself and to bring glucose. It's a GLUT4 receptor for those of you that are super nerds, the GLUT4 receptor, it will sort of translocate to the cell surface. And then you're able to take the glucose out of the system and then the muscle will use it for its own use. Very important to weight train so that we can optimize growth hormone, right? And we can optimize testosterone levels. And that lift, like that sort of rise of testosterone above baseline after you weight train, depending on your experience and how hard you work, is going to be somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. So you have a lift of a day to two days of testosterone after you have a weight training session. So think about now, maybe you're training three times a week you are constantly lifting testosterone above baseline. And then I'll, I'll just throw in like a little neuroscience thing because I think it's important. The other thing that happens when you lift testosterone is you lift dopamine. For the ladies, dopamine is kind of your huntress neurotransmitter. So you want to achieve things, you are motivated and helps you, you know, create and check off your to-do list. So a lot of women, again, in their forties and fifties are like the things that I used to love, I no longer love anymore. The motivation's gone. The motivation's yeah. gone. So mm -hmm. part of increasing your natural baseline levels of motivation is through mediating these testosterone levels. So if you can lift testosterone through weight training, let's say you're also going to lift dopamine, which is going to improve your motivation. It's going to improve your focus and your clarity. And then we also get other knock-on brain effects like growth factors, brain neurotrophic growth factor, BDNF is also going to lift up as well, which is going to preserve volume of the brain, which is kind of, I know it's the Super organ- important that nobody ever thinks about, but your brain goes, like we were mentioning Alzheimer's, like you want to preserve the mass of your brain. You don't want it to get smaller ever.
Well, and I think it's so important that you mentioned this because again, you're tandeming two very critical hormones here, growth hormone and testosterone. So you are working on both besides, you know, weightlifting, obviously, and lifting heavy, as heavy as you can and gradually increasing that over time as well. I know that, you know, pairing that with protein consumption is going to really help build that muscle and create that protein synthesis that we're really needing. Yeah. So there's other pieces that we can toggle on to making sure that we're boosting testosterone and growth hormone, but lifting is going to be the big one. Also mitigating any level of insulin resistance that you're dealing with too is such a big player here. So mm -hmm. I know I did a whole episode on why lifting heavy is so important and, you know, and when it's important to start even just really considering that, which is as soon as possible to be honest. So I appreciate you going over that. Any other hormones that should be on our horizon besides these really powerful build you up hormones like growth hormone and testosterone? I would say insulin as well. Like insulin is another big one. It does like opposite of uh, growth hormone and testosterone actually that tend to decline as we age. Insulin tends to change as we age. We actually tend to become, if we're not doing anything, there's no strategies like the lifting or the protein that you mentioned. There is this tendency to become more insulin resistant as we age. So insulin resistance is basically your cells not being as sensitive to insulin as they once were, you know, which creates this sort of positive feedback loop where the pancreas is now secreting more and more and more insulin to try and clear blood glucose because at high enough levels, blood glucose is toxic. It is lethal. So we want the cells to actually take up the glucose to be able to produce energy. So one of the you know hallmarks of uh, a lot of women, men, I would say in this category as well, will say that they're just a lot more tired. Part of the tired or lack of energy is that insulin resistance piece. Like your cells are literally, they can't get the substrate into the cell to make the energy that you require in order to carry out all of your functions. So I think that for this piece, when we think about insulin, the protein is, is important. I would say more for the growth hormone and specifically the testosterone piece. And I typically like to, for starting with someone who has some metabolic issues, usually it is a moderate protein and a low carbohydrate intervention. Now, we were talking about this in the pre-chat. This can be very difficult for some women. Like some women already have so much stress. There's already so much load, let's say, that they can't take on another stressor like reducing their carbohydrates. So this is where the stress piece really does come in because when we want to optimize metabolism, I think one of the best things that we can do is a therapeutic intervention of either a ketogenic diet, which would be ideal for most women, or a low carb-ish, call it, diet. You pair that with some lifts, you pair that with some resistance training, you start off with once or twice a week, you build your way up to three, three is good, four is better, and then go from there. And that will usually help to reverse some of the anabolic resistance sets in, in the muscle, the insulin resistance that's sort of systemic. And then you're going to be optimizing for the two for growth hormone and testosterone, as we mentioned, but for women who are listening, they're like, Oh God, does she just say keto? Like I can't, like I've tried it. I hated it. I don't. One of the things that I notice specifically about low carbon keto is that women stay on it too long. So I'm talking about a cycle. Like I'm talking about 28 days. Like you are going to reduce your carbohydrates for four weeks. 
And then you're going to start strategically adding them back in. And then you're going to bump up your protein and then you can bump up your carbohydrates and kind of play with the fat lever, you know, however you see fit. But usually for women, after they've done that sort of low carb intervention, I like in order to protect the thyroid and to protect some of the other sort of consequences that can happen from being in keto too long, I usually will structure like a 40% protein diet. And then we have like 60% to kind of split between carbs and fat, depending on the preferences of the and the goals of the patient. And when we're talking about, let's say someone's trying to do keto and you know, there's a lot of reasons why it's failing for women, but let's say it's a 30 day protocol, but what would, would be low carb ish? Would it be 70 grams, like net carbs? Would that yeah, be yeah. low carb ish enough? I to, think so. Yeah. How tall she is, right? Yeah. What her physical activities. I've had women say like, why don't you do like under 20 grams of car? It's like, well, how many calories are you taking in at t- less than 20 grams of carbs? Like you're basically having almost completely fat and protein. Like that's almost completely carnivore. So net carbs, like you brought up a really great point. Like net carbs are very important. So we don't count fiber. Fiber doesn't count. Fiber is sort of the fourth unofficial macro, right? Doesn't count towards your calories, uh, but does a whole bunch of great things. So yeah, I just wanted to just articulate that you can get there. You can start to improve your metabolic markers without being fully keto. And maybe once you adapt, then you can go a little bit more intense again, again, for a small amount of time. I agree that over, we can't sustain that over time or our chemistry. It's not a very female centric way of operating at all. Okay. So anything else when you're thinking about supporting women through perimenopause and menopause, are there any other non-negotiables for you? And specifically thinking about yourself, like what are some other non-negotiables for you? We talked about stress. We talked about looking at really important biomarkers here. And we talked about what does it look like to move in terms of walking, weight training, weight resistance. And we talked about, you know, obviously managing stress, mastering stress, lots of ways to do that as well. But I love the ways that you recommended anything else that, you know, we you talked about your why and your purpose. So really having a reason to make some of these big changes, anything else that you feel like we really need to be like, needs to be on our radar as we navigate this transition. I think that the, we've talked about a lot of the big ones. The other piece that I have found to be incredibly helpful. And again, I used to sort of like roll my eyes at it when I first heard it. And I was like, oh God, whatever sunlight, but getting some sunlight (laughs) in the morning. Oh God. Okay. Whatever sunlight in the morning, you know, but then, you know, you sort of dive into the science and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. it's totally driving up as the central clock in the brain, the peripheral clocks is getting the cortisol awakening response. It's turning on your mitochondria. Like it helps with sleep. It helps with sleep. The ladies, you you start preparing for sleep like in the morning, right? So good sleep starts in the morning. So I've tried. So when I'm like jumping into the snow, I'll try to also, whether it's uh, on the sunny side of the snow, (laughs) on the sunny Sunny side, okay. I'm jumping into sunny snow over here. I try to get some, you know, five to 10, I'll usually put on, like, I'll usually, I won't stay out for 10 minutes, but I'll try to get like five to 10 minutes. If it's a really freezing day, I'll try to get out for five to 10 minutes with like direct sunlight in my first thing in the morning. And it really makes a big difference. Like if you are having trouble sleeping, you know, and even if you live, like you live in California, like you, you know, but right now you're indoors, right? Like we, even if you, I've run labs for, you know, friends or whoever, like that live in sunny places, like Florida and California. And even though you live in a sunny 
place. That doesn't mean that you're getting natural sunlight all the time. The opportunity is there for you, but more often than not, we see people spending their time indoors all the time. I also see vitamin D levels very, very low. I've seen terrible levels of vitamin D in, in Floridians. So I would say make sure wherever you live, whether it's on the East coast, like I am, I'm in Toronto, uh, Canada, or you're in California as you are, or you're in Florida or wherever that you're getting sunlight in the morning. And it's such a small little thing that I would have never put it on my list. Like I was always like diet and exercise. And I still do believe those are the two biggest levers that you could ever pull in terms of maximizing performance and how you feel and body composition. Like those are the big two. But if you're sort of following in step, I would say like we've talked about stress and I would say sunlight, like it is so important and it's free. Yeah, it is. Yes. So adhering to our circadian rhythm and adhering, it's really fascinating, the interception between circadian rhythm and our our 28 day cycle, but really optimizing both for us matters. You know, I know that everything's kind of based around a circadian male dominated type of cycle, but we can really leverage both to work in our favor. The last question I have, because I know we're wrapping up real quick is I just wanted to hear a little bit about your stance around intermittent fasting for women, because we're talking about circadian. So I do love women to consider at least a circadian based fast, unless they have such severe adrenal fatigue. That's a whole nother conversation that we need to scale that back. But talk to me about the benefits of intermittent fasting for this transition as well. And, you know, what kind of levers have you seen work successfully? I know some women are trying to do some crazy, crazy fast, but not really clear about the timing of when they should do them. But do you find there is a kind of a gentle window that if you don't know a lot about it, you can at least try this little window, see what happens and move from there. Yeah. I like a 12, 12. I like 12, 12. So 12 hours of eating, 12 hours of fasting. And to be honest, I do that most of the time. So the diet and the fasting protocol that you follow when you're metabolically unhealthy is going to be different than the fasting and nutrition protocol that you follow when you're healthy. So I needed to in order to sort of heal some of the derangements that I was dealing with, I was kind of dealing with more estrogen dominant type issues. I talk about this in the book a little bit. So I was fasting quite a bit and I was fasting a lot in the second half of my cycle to try to bring down some of the excess estrogen that my body just likes to produce. So I have gone from doing multi-day fasts, like they're, uh, you know, three, four, five day fasts to now pretty much just like kind of a 12, 12, a 10, 14. Like now I'm in the, in the follicular phase of my cycle. So, you know, I'm a little less hungry. So 14 hours I might fast. If I don't feel like it, it'll be 12. It's so easy and unstructured that it just falls into the background, but I'm always doing it. That's how I would approach it because I think that humans and this is maybe the type A in me, whenever I find like a new trick, I'm like, I'm all in, like, put me in coach. Like I'll do it all the way, you know, and I'll go like all the way to the ends and I'll do like five days or whatever it is. And you can do that. Anybody can do that once, but to consistently do that, like every quarter I had scheduled in like a three day fast and like literally as that time was, I saw it coming on my calendar. Like I would just get more and more and more agitated. And so I've landed now having gone through my own process and sort of healed my own issues and helping, you know, however many thousands of of women, I just, whatever is easy is the thing that's going to stick. Like if it's too complicated, if you're like, God, I got to do a 16 hour fast today, but I'm hungry. The other thing too, is that women will say, no, I've planned for a 16 hour fast today and they're hungry and they don't honor that. Mm. In the same way that last week I was like, I have a back workout scheduled and 
you know, I honored the fact that I was tired. A previous version of me, let's say, would not have, and I would have done the back workout. So a lot of women will say, nope, I said I was going to do 16. I'm not eating until one o'clock. And by the time they get to one o'clock, you know, they're just frantically reaching for whatever is in within arm's reach. So I would just say 12, 12 to start and probably stay there. Maybe yeah. stay there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to get your take, you know, and it requires a lot. I mean, there's already so much mental bandwidth that we are having to, you know, having to like have capacity for regarding our families, our communities, our things that we're dealing with. You know, another thing to add of like, okay, oh, okay, this is, okay, where am I out of my cycle? Like trying to figure out, okay, they're doing this fast. And yeah, it's just a lot of mental bandwidth. And so I do agree that is if we can keep it simple, you know, if indeed we're in a maintenance mode in particular, that's the better move because the less we have, we already have so many other things that we're dealing with. We already have so many other moving plates in the air. And so this, you know, this is one of one many areas where it maybe doesn't need to be another one of those things that we have to be managing on a mental level. Yeah just sleep. And then, you know, like I tend to work out in the morning. That's the time that works for my schedule or what have you. So I wake up, I have a cup of coffee, you know, some water, uh, usually some electrolytes or something in there. And then I eat when I come home. So I train until about call it seven o'clock and then I eat at seven and I probably finish eating, I don't know, six, probably seven, something like that. Okay. So in the show notes, we're going to have the the lab guide, which you're going to yeah. hook me up with. Um, yeah. The book is right there, but I know you, if you're not on YouTube, you can't see it. So it's the Betty Body. I'm going to have the link to go and grab that as well. And I just want to say thank you so much, honey. I feel I'm so grateful for this beautiful nuanced conversation around how women can optimize their life and optimize their body to feel amazing. And I so appreciate you sharing your own personal journey with us as well. Thank you. I appreciate the time with you and I appreciate this podcast. I know that it helps so many women and just blessed to be a part of your community, a part of your life. And um, yeah, thank you for having me. I feel the same. Thank you, my love. So as you can tell, Stephanie and I are pretty much soul sisters from different countries. I love her expertise in fasting and ketogenic research, and I love how she pairs it with our cycle to really optimize our hormones, metabolism, and body composition. Man, there is so much that we can do our own when it comes to using our cycle and our body as an indicator to optimize our hormones and feel great, right? We have a lot more power than we think and that we've been told. Now, I know Stephanie and I covered a lot in this longer than normal interview, but I think it was totally worthwhile and it may be hard to remember it all. So what I want to recommend is go and grab her book. Her book is amazing. I've read it so many times. I have recommended it so many times. It's called The Betty Body. And be sure to check out her lab guide for optimal lab ranges for your hormones and other important biomarkers. I know so often we go to the doctor, they don't really interpret our labs or the ranges are too wide. And so we don't really get really clear functional lab readings for what is going on with our body. And we know that measuring is so important. So what I love about this guide is Stephanie dives deep into optimal ranges and what is really critical when you go to your doctor and ask for a full lab panel during your physical exam. So I will have both of the links in the show notes for this episode. And again, I hope you enjoyed it. I really had such a beautiful time in the conversation that I was having with Stephanie and that I hope that it opened the doors for just exploring and kind of experimenting with how to support your body. Now, if any of the information today supported you or served you, be sure to subscribe to the show and rate it as well so that more women are tuning in to become the CEO of their health. Until the next episode, have an amazing day. 